Nurses and Hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. Artistic expression is so important in our world. I mean, where would we be today without the great artists like Picasso, Rembrandt, Monet, and so many others? In this episode of Nurses in Hypochondriacs, we talk to artist Dominic Quagliozzi, who discusses the importance of art advocacy in healthcare. You won't want to miss this episode. It's a super fun one. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Rogue Nurse Media 501c3 and the well-written nurse, empowering nurses and patients to tell their stories. And welcome to the show, Dominic Quagliozzi. Hey, how's it going? So happy to be here. Sorry if I'm, uh, I know you're recording already, but um, if you hear a beep in the background, that's my low blood sugar monitor. It's still, it's still going off, but it should probably be all right. I'm, I've been drinking Coke for about 10 minutes. No worries. It's a, you know, <laughs> this is a healthcare type show. So this is perfect. That was a great intro coming in. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. Finally, we're on together. I've been trying to get you on for quite a long time, but I think it's the right time right now. I mean, the show is very intuitive for me. Yeah. Um, so because I sent you that uh, podcast on the L.A. Opera and how they're doing stuff with art and health yeah. and their opera singer, who is now like an ambassador with who she was all saying her name is Renee Fleming. So she was all saying that nobody is doing art and health. And I was just like, what? I, <laughs> I almost threw my phone to the wall. Cause I was just like, what are you talking about? You know, they had this whole summit in Los Angeles at the beginning of June. I think it was June 9th on art and health. You know, I didn't know about it. Um, I saw the people that were there and I was just like, I probably wouldn't have attended anyway, but this has been going on a long time. I mean, like, tell us about you. When I asked you, you were like, I'm do I've been doing this my whole life. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's, um, it's something that it's getting more attention mainstream. I think it's, uh, you know, in the UK, they, they've been doing it for a few years of articles. I've been reading articles about uh, social prescribing and um, it's kind of working its way to the United States too. But this, this idea that doctors are prescribing uh, going out to see art as, as therapy or as medication rather than chemical medication, you know? So um, it's definitely a thing um, for me. It, it, I've been doing it as a practitioner, as an artist working with medical students and doctors and nurses and other patients, um, but also like in less traditional forms or less official forms. Um, I've been doing this as a, a patient uh, my whole life as a, as a patient, as a kid with child life specialists, art making activities in the playroom and with other patients, other, other young cystic fibrosis patients. 
uh, growing up before um, the six, the three feet apart and then six feet apart um, cross contamination rules. You know, in the early '90s, we were making art together and playing together. It was encouraged, uh, but yeah, so it, it's not really a new thing for me in terms of using art as uh, a way of coping with illness, a way of pain management, as a way of being more in tune with your body and with other people going through similar medical issues. Um, but I, I'm happy to see it more on a, a mainstream level and getting jobs in this in this particular sector, you know, as a way of uh, making a living and being, you know, as a, for me, uh, you know, I have a master's degree in studio arts, but also unofficially a, a master's or maybe a PhD as a, being a patient and knowing what it's like to be a patient and interacting with care teams and taking medications and going through major surgeries. I've had a lung transplant and, and things like that. So you haven't had just one lung transplant. You had you, both of your lungs are transplanted, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. It was at the, the surgery itself was done at the same time. So a bilateral lung transplant. And actually it's interesting. You mentioned like we've been trying to plan this for a few years and um, kind of intuitively wanted to reach out to me again recently to see if we could actually c connect our schedules to make it work. Um, but my, in two days, I'm celebrating my eight year transplant anniversary. So this is actually perfect timing for recording this podcast. Yeah, because I went to your fifth anniversary party, which was awesome. <laughs> yeah. And and like I was telling you before the show, you were there and Nick was there, who is another bilateral lung transplant. He's also Italian. Yes, he is. Yeah. Like us. And, um, and like I said, when I walked in, I hadn't met you personally. I think we had met on Facebook. And when I met the two of you, I was like in awe because both of you had these halos around you. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what I saw, you know, mm -hmm. and it was dark and there was a light, but then the two of you came to the door. I remember of your backyard when you lived in Burbank and I just saw these halos around you and I was like, these guys are amazing. You know, it's like you, I mean, have gone through just uh, unimaginable stuff, you know, that the normal everyday man or even human person uh, would ever go through. I mean, uh, like, and I was telling you a little bit about, you know, some of the guys that I've dated and they have these challenges, but it's just like weird. They pollute their bodies with substances. And I always think about you, you know, and they're always crying about stupid shit. <laughs> and I'm like, you can't even cry. You need to meet Dominic. You know, <laughs> he's freaking amazing. Yeah, you know, thanks. and Nick, because didn't Nick also have um, a kidney transplant too? Yeah, I think he's um, two years post kidney transplant. The years of tacrolimus, which are oh pretty toxic to the kidneys, but you have to take that uh, or some variation of that medication post uh, lung transplant. It, it kind of basically killed his kidneys. So he he had a kidney transplant two years ago. He's doing great. Yeah. He's between LA and Chicago and yeah, he's, he's doing amazing things. He was, 
a couple yeah i think uh two years ago in fargo the tv show on fx he was uh that's right yeah so he's doing great that's so cool so tell us a little bit about your experiences as a kid with cystic fibrosis because i've as a pediatric uh nurse practitioner pediatric nurse i've had some patients with cystic fibrosis i mean it is a pretty intense disease process that you have to live with your entire life and kind of let's talk also about some of uh the art and the work that you do that goes hand in hand yeah, so I was diagnosed when I was three months old, and this is in 1982. So it was pretty, uh, you know, things were still being learned about the disease, even today, still, you know, a lot of new developments, but not much was known about <clears throat> cystic fibrosis in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the early 80s. So it took a little bit of time to find the right doctor that could. Uh, do the sweat test and, you know, test my salt content and my sweat to figure out whether or not I had cystic fibrosis. I was, uh, had bowel obstructions. I had a lot of coughing, a lot of um, issues when I ate. So those are, you know, now looking back, you have the lung issues, you have the sinus issues, you have the digestion issues. Those are all the three main body systems that are affected by cystic fibrosis. And so, I started getting chronic lung infections, pneumonia early on, you know, when I was five, six years old. So I was in and out of the hospital for two weeks at a time from a very early age, uh, spent a lot of time around holidays in the hospital, um, you know, just whenever lung function dropped, breathing dropped, a lot of coughing, a lot of fevers, uh, poor absorption, malnutrition from uh, malabsorption, I should say. And yeah, so had a very early relationship with being a patient and being medicalized and um, hospital environment was very familiar to me. And so a lot of my friendships from that early age kind of grew out of other CF patients that were my age in the hospital at the same time. And like I mentioned in the 80s and early 90s, we were still able to uh, hang out with each other and, and be friends. It was actually encouraged. There were CF camps and um, events at the specific hospital I went to. So patients, parents, and other CF kids could meet and form support groups. And then in the early to mid 90s, they started seeing all this research showing cross infection, cross contamination with different um, bacterias that CF patients were uh, harboring in their lungs. So they started the three foot rule and then the six foot rule, meaning you couldn't come within three or six feet. Um, so you wouldn't pass the germs on. And, you know, now as we see post COVID, that was a, a big thing during COVID is, you know, isolation and, um, social distancing and those kind of terms that came up but you know that's been my lifestyle within the cf community since you know i was born yeah i'm all about uh social distancing so <laughs> <laughs> like i have this um I, I have this thing about personal space you know and i think it's 
I I'm really empathic and psychic. So I think it's all about the Taurus field, you know, our, our energy field as well. And, and probably for you too, um, not only as a CF patient, but as an artist, you know, you get really sensitive to your environment, you know, so it's probably a good thing to practice that social distancing to clear out your Taurus field so you don't get anybody else's junk coming in, you know, I mean, um, really interesting uh, life trajectory. So tell us how you really started performing. I love some of your performance art pieces that you were doing um, early on, you know, uh, where you were showing people what your CF is all about and how you deal with it. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So I I made a a lot of art when I was younger. It's kind of my entryway into uh, expressing what it's like to be a person with cystic fibrosis and um, <clears throat> would always be drawing and painting in the hospital. That's kind of where I started making art. And then after undergrad, I I decided I was going to pursue being an artist professionally and, and um really work through some of the issues that I wanted to explore within my art. And some of those issues were things like living with cystic fibrosis, but that being an invisible illness and this idea of how to express an invisible illness or performing illness, this situation where a lot of being sick is something you do behind closed doors and private. And I wanted to bring that into public spaces and try to express those ideas more publicly. And so at the time, I this is in like 2010 or so, thinking about the treatments that I was doing with cystic fibrosis are um, vest treatment where it's like you wear this vest and it vibrates and it helps you with airway clearance, doing nebulizers, you inhale medications, and that helps open up the airways and IV antibiotic treatments that as I got older, I was able to do those at home rather than being in the hospital for two, three weeks at a time. I would get IV bags and do them at home with a home nurse and things like that. So I started looking at these treatments that were done in my bedroom or my living room by myself or and things like that very isolating and bringing those into public spaces and doing them like on sidewalks in Los Angeles or I did one vest session at a performance art festival I did an I I hung an IV bag off of the urban light urban lights um, sculpture at LACMA it's very iconic sculpture of 280 street lamps that were repurposed in front of the uh, museum of los angeles museum of contemporary art and um yeah so i started doing these in public spaces and opening up dialogue about illness and how we treat people with illness and what as a society in america we kind of push those people to the margins and and um you know, like this work is all pre-COVID. So it's interesting now I've been talking about this work a little bit. I did an artist talk at the RISD Museum last year. And now looking back at this work kind of recontextualized post-COVID, 
where a lot of illness had been performed in public or the expectation was to retreat to these private spaces into isolation and like we mentioned already social distancing and uh kind of you know that's obviously in one in one sense to prevent the spread of disease but in another sense we're not necessarily thinking about or we are thinking about now but we didn't in the in the past think about how that impacts someone's social and emotional well-being and and th these kind of ideas so i think it's obviously you know great to have a dialogue about that but um that's kind of where that early work kind of came out of yeah that's super cool i mean i love it i remember when i first encountered you i was doing some research and i think i don't know i don't remember how i found you i just found you i i think on facebook and then i found ted who was doing um a lot of the scar art and then I went down this rabbit hole of all these really interesting artists who were creating art through their disease process, you know, and some of it was performance art. And this was very early. This was like in 2015, you know, way before COVID, 2015, 2016. 2016, I went to uh, London and I went to the British Museum and there was this whole art exhibit, which I think was very interesting. Um, and it was a 10-year process where there was one artist um, that did something with weaving. And she worked with a physician and two patients to go through a 10-year disease process of medications that they use. And I think one was a diabetic. Uh, and I forget what the other person was. I think it was like some type of a cardiac patient, but they had all their meds that they had used in 10 years. And it was somehow interwoven, like all the pills were interwoven into this tapestry. It was really, really interesting. I was like, this is super cool, you know, and, and suddenly I'd gone into this world when I'd worked at children's hospital, I started working there in 2007 to about 2013, there was, uh, we had art therapists. So and, uh, one guy uh, who was our artist in residence, which was Carlos Nieto, who was super cool. And he worked one-on-one -on -one with the kids, especially with the kids who were in isolation, getting their bone marrow transplants and stuff like that. I, I mean, he was awesome. But yeah, it is such a, um, I, it's like, I have no words for it. I mean, it, it's, it's awesome. I, I think more and more people need to do it. I'm trying to get an artist, um, uh, an art exhibit going at my clinic, which I want to do uh, quarterly at least where I have um, some of my patients uh, do art. Cause a lot of the kids nowadays, I mean, school sucks. Number one, who wants to sit in a uh, seat for eight hours a day, super boring. You know, we have stuff like PE and art kind of shoved to the side. But a lot of these kids that come in who may have ADHD are artists, you know, and they're like, look at my work, you know, and, and their parents will have it on their phone or they'll bring in stuff. So I kind of want to, I've been wanting to do that for almost over two years now, I've been, I keep talking about it and uh, my office manager, her daughter uh, is an artist. So I'm like, we can have her be the artist in residence first, you know, and um, 
and, and see how that goes, which I think is great. But you also go into hospitals and do lectures with residents and fellows, correct? Yeah. So for, you know, probably about 13 or so years. So around the time when I started making this more public, <clears throat> this public performance work of, you know, performing illness and, and exploring themes of patienthood and uh, those kind of themes in my work, I, I also started to do lectures and workshops with uh, medical students, nurses, and things and um, other um, hospital groups as a way to kind of walk them through what it's like to have an illness, have things like, you know, diagnosis, illness process, treatment plans, uh, exploring outcomes, things like that uh, in a visual way. So I wanted to use the work that I've made and show like slide lectures and talk about the things that I am going through, think about some of the uh, different like social and financial pressures of coming in and out of, um, you know, a, a work environment because you have to go to the hospital or whatever. And and so like all these challenges that that I was facing as a patient, I thought would be something that these doctors and nurses could, uh, medical students could take away positive, impactful things that could help their practices in the future. So we st started doing some of those lectures and workshops and it kind of just grew from there. And I've also worked with this, uh, it's called Creative Healing for Youth in Pain or CHIP. It's an organization out of Los Angeles that works, works with kids and teens that have chronic pain, some that are have have chronic pain for years and some that are newly diagnosed. And that kind of that's um working with some neuroscientists from UCLA, but also creative practitioners like myself, other artists in the field, to work on community building with other kids their own age that have chronic pain, again, to kind of break down that sense of isolation and aloneness and the thing, you know, that experience I had of missing a lot of school because I was sick or in the hospital. Uh, there's a lot of kids that have that experience. So with CHIP, we do ca summer camps and workshops, community building through art making, um, making paintings, digital art, performance art workshops, photography, storytelling, movie making, all different types of art making to tell their own personal stories within these little groups. And it could be anywhere from like three other kids to 10 kids or 15 kids in a different, you know, in a camp or a workshop. And it's the, some, for some of these kids, it's the first time they're hearing about other kids going through chronic pain or the same things that they're dealing with. So it's like, whoa, I'm like, I'm not alone in this and I can reach out and things like, you know, um, social media and Zoom and all, you know, different ways to teleconnect have been also very impactful and beneficial to kind of break up that isolation and, and uh, have more creative outputs to express 
a lot of things that don't necessarily have verbal or or text language um you can kind of achieve with the visual arts you know yeah yeah definitely and i think it makes a bigger impact you know um instead of just either talking to somebody you know or um I don't know, or just giving them something to read, right? It's just art. It just does, it It illuminates different parts of the brain, you know, so that there's more, I feel, of a connection somehow, you know, bringing that person into the present moment and, um, you know, just making it a little bit more real, but still surreal. Uh, I, that's the only way yeah. that I can go ahead and... <laughs> explain it so yeah because i think what i i talk about a lot too in in my workshops and lectures that the best thing that art does is it communicates with an open-endedness so there is there's room for interpretation so what if i tell you something like i'm if i tell you you know I could tell you a textbook definition of what cystic fibrosis does to my body, to, to a, a body specifically. Right. But if I express something in a visual way or an auditory way with music or with video or however that is executed, I am putting in what cystic fibrosis is doing to my specific body, but also there's pathways in there for other people to take things out and they'll they'll make the connections on their own and and there's a sense of empowerment there there's an agency that a lot of patients don't ever really get they're just getting diagnosis they're getting treatment plans they're getting medication and then they're getting discharged to go home but they're they're being like enacted upon and art is a way to give them an agency for their own action and their own interpretation. And they can take ownership of their particular interpretation and reading of a particular work. And then hopefully if, you know, if they want, they can make their own artwork. And that's a, a, a really beautiful way to perpetuate um, ideas and experiences. I think that's a great point that you bring up, especially nowadays where we're hearing more and more like there was this one hospital, I think it was on the East Coast. I don't remember which one who is no longer seeing patients who owe uh, a certain amount of money to the hospital or to the insurance companies. I had a patient on Monday who went to see a dermatologist and the dermatologist, they were waiting in the room and the medical assistant had come in to the mom and the mom works in healthcare, which was so weird. Comes in, tells the mom, Oh, the doctor won't see you. You owe a certain amount of money. And she said that, okay, she goes on her phone. She pays it. The doctor comes in, barely spends 10 minutes with the kid, you know, and, and, and she's got like terrible acne. She's 14, you know, then she comes and sees me and I know, you know, I, I've seen her before and I've taken care of her brother as well. And so we sit and we have this very relaxed conversation. You know, I had acne too. So we have a very relatable conversation on different things that they could do. Um, but yeah, it is just so important. We're kind of losing, unfortunately, this human connection 
you know, uh, because a lot of people and, and part of it is the computer systems, too. And people are forgetting like, hey, this is a human being right in front of me. But I think art tends to bridge that communication storytelling tends to bridge that communication as well. I mean, I love the stories that my patients tell me. They're so, uh, you know, I had this four-year-old girl and I asked her the other day, I was like, hey, um, do you have any pets? And she's like, my dog is in heaven. And I was like, oh, really? And she's like, yeah. And so then she starts telling me this story, which goes back. And the mom was like, we didn't even want this dog. But the four-year-old was like, we'll take the dog, you know, and it was just a weird, it, it just, I think she said it was a cross between a chihuahua and a, um, gosh, I forget what other dog. It was a big dog. Uh, uh, so anyway, and she said it was just a, a weird uh, looking dog. And, you know, and, and they were like best buddies until one day they were playing out in the front and the dog was never on a leash and was really good when it was around the house. But there was a bigger dog that came and, uh, you know, the little girl was told not to go to the dog. The mom was there. And so the bigger dog came and, you know, grabbed her. And the little this four year old is telling me the whole entire story, you know, wow. about how she gets bit by this bigger dog. The little dog, her dog goes and retaliates and starts to attack the bigger dog to get the bigger Crazy. dog off of the kid. And then the bigger dog, of course, rips um, the little dog's throat, you know, and rips the esophagus. But the dog ended up living for four days. And then the mom goes, this little, the four-year-old was by that dog's side every minute until that dog passed away. I mean, what a beautiful story, right? And this yeah. four-year-old told me the whole thing. You know, I had the most precocious patients on Monday. I went to my, my nurse. I was like, God, I'm getting all these great stories today with these, these really precocious kids who, you know, are coming in and um, they're awesome today. You know, I love that. It doesn't always happen. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I have to pull out, you know, these kids aren't speaking, but for some reason on Monday, I got all these kids that needed to tell me their stories, but it was super cool. So, um, yeah. So what are some of the stuff that you're doing now? Yeah. So I'm doing a few things. I usually work on projects, multiple projects at the same time, two, three sometimes. And so right now I'm, I'm getting ready to start new work for Toronto hospital, their transplant clinic. That's awesome. They have, yeah. They, they have a space. And I've been talking with them for a few months and in the fall, close to December-ish, we'll be installing some work in there, uh, the transplant center. Um, so that work is, it's going to be like uh, kind of a variation on the work that I just finished for a show in Sydney. So oh. it's, yeah, it's like, uh, colored pencil drawings on hospital gowns that are then cut and collaged, sewn together with uh, other textiles, like uh, I, I should say, like useful textiles, like moving blankets. Um, there's some masks and gloves in there, like medicalized 
it's fabrics and fabrics that have a lot of like emotional labor involved in them, like the hospital gowns, the moving blankets. Mm -hmm. And so I, then I collage those together in, in certain ways. And so for this installation at the Toronto hospital, I'm thinking about doing something with that technique, that process into like butterflies or things that are, um, that sense of transformation or metamorphosis and I love that yeah the cycles of life and things like that and um so that's kind of what's coming on the end of the year and i'm also working on making paper handmade paper from the scraps of those larger pieces that i cut so it's like the scraps of the hospital gowns that have been cut and shredded and then i I grind those down and make handmade paper with the actual the hospital gowns themselves. So it's kind of working with techniques of um, cotton rag paper, which is uh, you know a form of paper that we've used for for a long time, and um, using hospital gowns to make that paper. I haven't necessarily figured out what I'm going to use the paper for right now. I'm just focused on making the paper. Mm. I've been experimenting with that for about a year. Um, yeah, so I'm pretty excited about that. Get, get to dive into that a little bit after, um, I'm going to Sydney for that show next week. So when oh I get gosh, back, from, how exciting. yeah, I'm excited for that. So yeah. when I get back from that show, it, I'll start working on this new work. Oh my gosh. That's super cool. I always loved the suit you made out of, um, the hospital gowns. That is awesome. Yeah. I made that in 2019. After after years of thinking about like this idea of being a patient and expected to have the role of patient, but then also leaving the hospital and being a person in the world and having to work and have responsibilities and then getting sick and sliding back into the hospital. So like this this kind of constant oscillation between patient and personhood and um the shifting expectations and responsibilities. And, uh, you know, I kind of synthesized all that finally in 2019 with this idea of making the, the, like this business suit that I would wear necessarily like to like a professional job, but make it out of the hospital gowns to kind of represent that I'm, I'm bringing those two identities with me at all, at all times. It's like, I Those, love that. They they don't go away. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because as providers, it's like no one thinks of that. No one thinks of like, okay, how's your other life gonna be? You know. So to wrap it all up, where can people uh get a hold of you? Yeah, so the best place is um my website is artistdominic.com and Instagram is Instagram.com slash artist dominic uh, that's d-o-m-i-n-i-c those are the two main places that i share work uh, talk about art and illness and connect with people yeah awesome well thank you so much for talking this has been super fun yeah i'm glad we got to finally finally do this and yeah, um, yeah it's great to see you again yeah great to see you too thank you so much till next time Thanks for listening to our Nurses and Hypochondriacs podcast. 
We love your support and we love our listeners. If you have some spare change, go ahead and throw some to us on our Venmo at Nurses in Hypocon. Also, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love that. And if you'd like to be a guest, go ahead and send us an email at nursesandhypochondriacs at gmail.com.